This is Museum People, a podcast that celebrates individuals connected with the museum field by highlighting their work, passions, opinions, and personalities. In each episode, you'll hear stories and viewpoints from a variety of museum people, unsung workers to executive directors, volunteers to trustees, as they help change the world one visitor at a time. And now, the hosts of Museum People, Dan Yeager and Marika Van Dam. Marika, season two. Dan, welcome back, friends. Yes, Here we are. I know. We haven't seen each other since season one ended. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for sticking with us. Or for our new listeners, welcome. So what did we learn in season one that we're taking over to season two and improving upon? I think we're trying to be a little more organized this season. <laughs> is that is that working? I don't know. <laughs> Time will tell. Um, we've heard a lot of great feedback from our listeners. I heard a lot of great things from people. They really appreciated um, the stories behind the, the people that they know and the people that they don't know. Yeah. Our first segment uh, today is person on the street interviews, which is uh, something that we got started in season one, and uh, we continued that with doing a few interviews in Washington, D.C. during the AAM conference. They call it an annual meeting. Why do they call it an annual meeting instead of a conference? Um, I don't know. Bylaws? I don't know. It's kind of a throwback, though. You know, these conferences did start out as sort of small meetings where people would read scholarly papers, and now they've turned into these big extravaganzas of museum professionals that come together and network primarily, and do some some professional development. I get overwhelmed at AAM. Do you? Yeah. There's so much stuff happening in one given time, and I just wish there was just this day where you go to sessions, and then you do this activity in the evening, instead of trying to decide, should I cut out of this one early to attend this workshop, and this and that, and this trip, but then there's other trip. There's a lot going on. 5,000 people, I think, 5,500. That's a lot of people in a convention center. Yeah. It's a big, big thing. I don't know how many people I've, I've seen since the conference that have said, oh, I was there. I didn't see you. Like, really? Wow. I you mean, either all... don't see people you know, or you see the people that you do know a hundred times. Yeah. That's how conference right. works. Well, so when you go, Marika, are you in sessions mostly, or are you uh, fooling around in the lobby talking to people? I used to do more sessions, and now that I know more people, and now that I know people across the country, it's an opportunity to reconnect with old colleagues or people that Mm. I've talked to on the internet, and um, yeah, it's nice to just have these conversations. One observation that I made early in, earlier in my career, I was involved in the hospitality field, and I went to a number of travel and tourism conferences, and I compare how uh, those conferences are to the museum conference, AAM, and whereas in the past at these other travel and tourism types of things, of course, most of these businesses are for-profit, or hotel businesses, or restaurants, or tour companies, and the like, and so the hallway conversations, the lobby conversations, people are making deals. That's where the deals are being made. The deal-making at AAM is a little bit different, I find. 
and that is that there are people that are making deals, but they're all like collaborations and how we work together and what might we do. And I know, you know, a number of my conversations making the deals, but you know, they were deals about how do we, how do we collaborate? I don't know. I find it really rewarding in that regard. Nice. You know, one area we messed up, we didn't have a pin. A pin? Oh, a pin. You mean museum people, right? I thought you meant a, <laughs> I put personal identification. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? No. Yeah. Um, yeah, a pin. We could have a used button, a, a, button. a button, a museum people button, because I will say that as I approached, and I don't know if it was the case with you, I'd yeah. approach people with a mic and they would back away like, like I was um, some kind of a leper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Needed yeah. to have a press pin. Something like that. Yeah. That's a good idea. Let's yeah. do that. Watch out next year, St. Louis. We'll have fedoras and... <laughs> Who are those weirdos? (laughs) The person on the street interviews at AAM were really interesting. Uh, I was, in fact, out in front of the Expo Center, and as people were leaving, I asked them if they uh, would stand for a couple of seconds and answer a couple of questions for me. I think they gave us some real, real perspective from what's happening around the country. Great. Let's give a listen. Dan Danzig. I live in uh, Pasadena, California, and I'm a museum consultant, and so I'm a regular uh, participant at AAM. And what have you been hearing are the big issues on the floor here uh, that museum people are talking about right now? I think um, uh, participation and access to uh, museums by, um, uh, by uh, people of color. Yeah. Yep. Diversity, big issue. Diversity, big issue. All right, last question. Uh, we're here in Washington, D.C. There's going to be an election in a couple of months. What's at stake for museums in that election? That's a good question. Um, you know, I know it's always a fight getting public funding, but I don't know how much that's going to change or not, depending on how um, how the election goes. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's always a battle for the arts to get supported. So no matter who wins, I think we have our work cut out for us, making a case and... and uh, getting uh, getting a piece of the pie. I'm Christine Miller Bitts, and I'm the executive director for the Lucy Craft Laney Museum of Black History in Augusta, Georgia. And I'm here today just to gain more information, more experiences, and also support. What are the big issues facing museums today? Well, first of all, I think as far as I'm concerned, uh, I'm looking at all of the uh, new innovations uh, in regards to children's programs. And I know that technology is a program that's really needed in our communities because all of the kids know technology and uh, they learn from that experience. All right, one last question. We're here in Washington, D.C. There's an election coming up in a few months. What's at stake for museums in that election? I think it's really important that all of the politicians and the people in general, that they focus on the history, especially, of our museums and the people that are involved, the historical component that is necessary for our country to maintain its integrity. Well said. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, goodness. Uh, my name is Ethan Angelica. I work for Museum Hack, and I am at AAM to meet all the awesome museum people from around the country and learn what they're doing and share some of what we've learned as well. 
What are you hearing on the floor here of the convention center? What are the issues that are on people's minds right now? Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, you know, we come at this very much from an interpretation angle. Uh, how do you get people excited in museums? So a lot of what I'm talking with people about is, uh, you know, how do we create really specific experiences for different for different audiences and different groups? How do we go from, you know, moving from a one-size-fits-all model to saying, well, this demographic, this audience wants this, and that will get them to come in the door, versus this audience is into this, and how do we bring them in the door? And how do you craft the museum, not just from being a place of unilateral delivery, but a place where people become meaning makers and actively participate in creating the experience for themselves? Last question. We're here in Washington, D.C., an election coming up in a few short months. What's at stake for museums in that election? Uh, I think money is at stake, first and foremost. Funding is important, and how this thing swings could have a huge impact on the cultural sector, museums, and everyone else who plays in our sandbox. Um, but I also think, uh, you know, museums have this wonderful place to bring people together, uh, to become a real social space. And right now, I think that that's maybe what this country needs a little bit. We need to come together to play and have fun and talk and share and be people with each other. Um, so I think not only is, is there stuff at stake, but it is an interesting opportunity for this field. And I'm excited to see how we and everyone else get to be a part of that. I'm Susan Breikoff. I am Director of Corporate and Foundation Relations at the National Building Museum. And I am here because um, this is the best place to find new ideas and to talk to other museum people. It's pretty great. What are you hearing on the floor of the uh, conference here about issues? What kind of issues are people talking about right now? That is a really good question. I don't know. It seems like people are very interested in capital campaigns. That's a big thing. Um, And digital. Everything digital. And data. Data seems to be a really huge issue. Last question. We're here in Washington, D.C. An election coming up in a couple of months. What are the issues at stake for museums in that, that election? Um, wow. Well, that is really depends on who is elected president. So it's going to be it just it's so diametrically opposed. Like, I don't even know where to go with it with that question. What's at stake, though? What's at stake? Um, everything is at stake. I mean, who's going to be there wasn't there was a solution center on on moving to Canada. So, um, you know, will all of us will be just moving out of the country. That's going to be at stake. I am John Jacobson, president of White Oak Associates, and I'm here to learn more about the museum field that I love so dearly. And what are the things that you're hearing being talked about right now on the floor here at the annual meeting? What kind of issues are in the fronts of people's minds? Well, what we're all trying to figure out is how we um, measure museum impact and performance. How do we uh, use data? How do we use evaluation studies to really convince the rest of the world of our value? Last question. We're here in Washington, D.C. There's an election coming up in a few months. What's at stake for museums in that election? A huge amount is at stake in that election. Whether the U.S. government will, like other governments in the world, support museums or whether it will turn its back on them as some kind of luxury that we can dispense with. I'm Mel Scalzi. I'm a freelance uh, museum registrar currently at the Hartford Art School. I am here as I am every year for the past six years to network with more museum professionals. What are the big issues that you're hearing people talk about? Um, well, earlier today I went to a museum worker speak uh, roundtable and a lot of it was about paid internships and paying your interns and having uh, internships that are not just 
sorting screws and dusting things and having something that's um, actually you learn something out of it. Um, another thing about um, diversity in the way that we catalog things and um, use data to talk about uh, different groups of people and not segregating them. You know, an African-American man is also a man, not just an African-American man. So having something like that. So that's what I'm hearing about. There's an election coming up in a few months. What's at stake for museums in that election? Oh, God. <laughs> the I'm just scared that funding is going to get lost and put into a place that is not cultural. And without cultural institutions, we don't have compassionate people. Okay, so my name's Paul Bowers. I'm from uh, Museum Victoria in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, I'm here because I'm presenting a paper on um, uh, Sunday morning um, on personal narratives in exhibition spaces. And I'm also here because it's interesting to take the temperature of a vibrant museum culture. Um, the conference is really interesting, quite contrasting to Australia. Um, the main thing that I notice about it that's, that's really interesting is the um, bringing together of art museums, other forms of museums and historic houses trust and battlefield sites and the like into one community it's a very broad church of practice so what um are the big issues that you're hearing people talk about here i think it's the same issue that museums are facing all over the world just with different local colors so there's issues of what do we do with empowering and bringing in our communities and how do we let go of our own authority in that how do we change the roles that we have internally appropriately so that that's more um more achievable um i also think there's again it takes different colors all over the world but it's being talked about here a lot is the um uh how do we serve our audiences better how do we get to a service position with our audiences which is beneficial commercially it's beneficial in um achieving our mission and it's beneficial for motivation of staff to be doing something that's actually of genuine value rather than going through the motions in an academic ivory tower Excellent. All right. And you're going to love this last question. I like to hear this uh, take on things. We're here in Washington, D.C. There's going to be an election soon. What do you think is at stake for museums in an election like this coming up, the presidential election? So, I, I, Trump seems an interesting character from, uh, from overseas. Um, I, I'd only say that what I notice is an incredibly binary tone of debate. And as soon as you reduce nuance, as soon as you reduce any level of complexity down to base mudslinging, he said, she said, that doesn't actually advance your culture at all. It doesn't empower anybody. It doesn't let us live better lives. A lot of those people raised some good points about what we were feeling and thinking about at the conference. And I think I agreed with a lot of the things they said. I heard a lot of those things as well. What did you think of the political question? I didn't frame it who you're for or who you're against, sure. but just the idea of what's at stake in this election. I thought that funding was the answer people felt they should give. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I always wonder how much funding do you actually get from the government? Is there anything really on the table? Yeah, and I guess for me, the the issue at stake um, for uh, there are a couple things that I think are at stake. The bigger issues, but 
One is this, I work in the history field. So when I hear this rhetoric of make America great again, it makes me so angry because if we only appreciated history more and involved in our daily lives, we would not be asking each other that question or making that statement. We would know, and we would not use that statement because for various reasons, that's a whole other separate podcast episode. Um, two, I think that um, I think that overall we are losing this culture of education and valuing education and um, intellectual pursuit. Right. And that is coming through very, very strong in this election. And I'm in a bubble. I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So for me, I'm surrounded by smart thinkers every day who are pursuing education and making the world a better place. And for people to just sling insults and to not value thoughts and the intellectual pursuit, I think, is scary. Well, it's so interesting you say that because I was thinking the same thing about the answers. A lot of that it seems is validation for the museum field in their minds. So the one option represents a complete anti-intellectualism. It represents the idea that the forces of what mediocrity of, of, you know, the forces that really don't care about arts and culture are in the ascendancy possibly. So it's almost a, an election on uh, one type of life or another. And I suppose that reflects how polarized we are, which is just crazy when you think about, well, you know, is it really Republicans versus Democrats, uh, uh, culture wars that the Republicans, uh, you know, in their current incarnation don't respect arts and culture, whereas the Democrats are the exclusive domain of arts and culture? Well, that's absolutely silly. But I think mm-hmm. that that's a way a lot of folks in our field are perceiving the way things shape up. So that if Donald Trump ends up winning, it actually represents the idea that uh, that there's a devaluation of what we do in the museum field, which I don't think is correct at all. But, you know, on the other hand, I think that that's what the perceptions are, the fears are. Right. And museums exist to help each other, and we learn together, and we help make our cities and our communities better places. And this rhetoric of us versus them, I don't care about these kinds of people is is scary. It's so wrong, and it goes against everything that museums stand for. It's 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 mind boggling to know that we can get away with this kind of language. Yeah. Well, it has to do with our advocacy efforts in a lot of ways too, and we can't forget that you know it's a big world out there, and there are a lot of people that value museums no matter what their political stripes. The other thing is that it, you also recognize that this is a moment that happens every four years and it becomes a very emotional, hot issue with people for a time. And then we, whoever wins or loses, we go on with our lives. Museums will survive since we are such a vital part of the fabric of the country. And, uh, you know, we'll move on. Yeah. All right. So um, our interview today is Laura Lott, the president and CEO of the American Alliance of Museums. And I had a a few minutes to talk with Laura about a, a lot of different things. Uh, she's been on the job now for a little over a year, and she has, uh, I think, accomplished a lot. She's been at AAM for some time prior to that uh, as the chief operating officer, but she uh, took the CEO position a year ago, and um, lots, lots happening there. Great. Let's hear from Laura. 
Well, I'm Laura Lott, the President and CEO of the American Alliance of Museums. And in my position, I'm so fortunate to get to see such a diversity of museums, uh, from art museums to zoos and science centers to children's museums and big and small, uh, that I really can see the, um, the, the wide ranging impact that museums are having on communities across the country. You know, my background is in nonprofit management, so I'm relatively new to the museum field, actually about the same time that you, uh, Dan joined NEMA, uh, is when I came to AM as the chief operating officer. But, my nonprofit management uh, career has taken me through a lot of organizations that deal with uh, education. And so that's where I find my deepest passion for the museum field is really in their education role. Among the many things that museums do, uh, their, their vital role in educating our kids um, and providing those hands-on experiences to and access to objects and places and people that can really spark a lifelong interest in those topics and in just in learning in general. So what are the big new initiatives for AAM? Yeah, so uh, uh, we're really, you know, our last strategic plan drove a lot of the changes uh, for AAM in 2012 that uh, broadened access to our resources through a broadened membership paradigm, uh, through a, 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 a continuum of excellence versus just having accreditation or nothing, um, and through, you know, the, our rebranding, and, and which was really... Uh, to mark a change in how AAM works, not just a new name and logo, uh, becoming an alliance and really working like that with uh, with partners across the sector and even outside of the, the museum sector. So our next strategic plan really gives us an opportunity, um, building on that solid foundation that we've established for the organization to look more externally and really think about what the field needs AAM to lead over the next 20, 25 years. And so we're going to be expanding some of the work that we've started to do with the Center for the Future of Museums and really thinking about a thought leadership role, both for AM and in finding those thought leaders that are out there in the field and making sure that their work and their, their, uh, their thinking um, and the, rela- you know, the, the related tools and case studies and everything that, that museums can use to apply some of those, um, those forward-thinking um, contemplations in their day-to-day work are available to museums uh, at, all, at all levels. The other area that we're really looking at is, um, is, is our role in uh, facilitating more global thinking and bringing up an international museum perspective or per- international perspective on museum practice back to some of the museums here in the U.S. So, you know, there, just like we say in the field, there is nothing that, you know, a museum is trying to address that somebody else hasn't addressed in some way. And that's even more true, you know, internationally. It just gives us a whole new world, literally, to, um, to look at and to bring back to the field and really facilitate some cultural diplomacy, some exchange of ideas, and, and some different thinking, some global thinking on our, all of our work. So as you're traveling around the U.S., uh, talking with folks, you're listening to her, what are some of the things that you're hearing? What are the big issues that are floating out there in the field? Yeah. Um, first and foremost, I hear, and, and this I don't think will come as a surprise to anyone, but is about a real urgency on um, diversifying our, our museums from every level, from our staffs to our boards to our audiences uh, and the experiences that we provide to engage people in the museum. So uh, I think, you know, this has been a conversation in the field for a long, long time, uh, but I feel a real sense of urgency among the museum directors and, and others that I'm talking to, even counterparts at the other museum service organizations. So 
I think this is the most critical issue of our time. And uh, I, I think that there's an opportunity for us to really come together and start to have a real impact and, and um, not that research and talking and convening and really working through some of it isn't important, but uh, we need action on that. And I think everyone uh, is feeling a lot of the field is feeling that same way and, and is ready to do the hard work to get us there. Um, the other area that comes up a lot is, uh, it's just, I'll, I'll term it as financial stability. So it's, uh, it's this uh, recognition that the economic, you know, world that we're all working in is fundamentally different than it was even a decade ago. And that, you know, museums are searching for different revenue models or searching for, uh, you know, different ways to do business with partnerships, um, with, uh, others, you know, outside of the museum sector even. And, uh, and I think that's a real, um, interesting thing for us to look at too. Even some have even questioned whether, you know, the very nature of nonprofit status will be, uh, something that we have to, you know, contend with or should contend with in the future. So AAM is going to be looking at, you know, so financial models. And that's another area internationally where we may have some lessons to learn from museums abroad. I've been hearing a lot about um, museum workers speak, uh, museums respond to Ferguson, social action. It seem, That seems to be on, a, on, uh, on everybody's lips. Is that something that AAM is really assisting with that conversation and solutions? I hope so. The, uh, you know, the Atlanta annual meeting theme was about social justice and, and social issues and social change in museums. And, um, I felt, uh, as, you know, participating in that meeting even that it was one of the, sort of harder hitting themes that we've had as a meeting in a while and really facilitated a lot of great um, discussion around museums role in social justice. Um, It it dovetails a little bit with our diversity, equity and inclusion um, struggles. So I think that that's why it's just in the world. It's 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 a huge uh, issue. And so museums reflecting that um, as an integral part of society, it's it's an integral you know, it's it's a big issue for museums. Our annual meeting this year, um, uh, with the theme of power, influence, and responsibility, is really another take on that. It's the the power that museums have in the stories that they choose to tell and how they choose to tell them, and the related responsibility um, with that. Um, and the and the and museums' role as a as authorities. We have a responsibility to our society to make sure that we're representing stories well and that we're representing all sides. And I think there's a a real social justice sort of undertone to that. AAM has been at the forefront of uh, helping this field find its footing uh, as an advocate for arts, culture, themselves as museums. Why do you think that we have taken so long to get to the game? And are we naturally suited to being advocates in our field. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, as much as we are all passionate about what we do in the field, we're not braggers per se, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes advocacy and really, you know, telling your story and, and, and bragging about the accomplishments that we have, both individually as institutions and as a field, feels a little uncomfortable to us. It's not maybe our nature. We're, we're service-oriented people generally um, and uh, and may feel a little uncomfortable to, to kind of toot our own horn. Uh, but I think that there's been, uh, you know, recent uh, recognition that that's an integral part of 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 responsibility really for, you know, for the field, for museums, um, to advocate for themselves proactively before there's a crisis, before there's a problem. Um, and then increasingly for museum professionals to advocate on behalf of the whole field, because indeed we, you know, we are stronger together and, and we, um, are a, um, you know, critical component of society, which I think it's undervalued, underappreciated, uh, in lots of the current, you know, political rhetoric. Um, and so I, I think we, 
we've been slow to come to it, but I think uh, there's been a great participation in Advocacy Day, uh, as well as some of the other you know advocacy activities that AAM tries to facilitate throughout the year. Um, this has been um, it's been really fulfilling, I think, for AAM to have so many great partners in Advocacy Day with uh, with NEMA and with a lot of the other regional, state, and and national uh, discipline specific organizations really coming together to uh, uh, to stand for museums and and to um, uh, you know take take the stance that we're just as important as everybody else who gets their say on Capitol Hill and and with uh, at the state and local levels as well. I'm very curious to to hear you're, you're uh, very much a role model, I think, for working moms. Uh, you're the president CEO of a of a big organization, a big field. You're a mom. You're traveling all over. How do you find the balance in your life to do it all? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, probably one of the biggest surprises to me in taking this role on is um, is how much of a role model I guess I am. It's still a little uncomfortable because I haven't figured it out. I'm still sorting it out every single day, every single week. Um, but, you know, obviously, you know, we as organizations leave a great uh, talent on the table if we don't find ways to be flexible and accommodate, uh, you know, not just moms, but dads and, you know, people who have all sorts of other uh, family and outside of work responsibilities. Uh, you know, they've heard a lot and read a lot about the term balance being sort of a misnomer. It's uh, sort of work-life integration. <laughs> that is a key. And working in, the, I feel really fortunate to work in the museum field, which is really all about families. And so my little three and a half year old comes along with me quite a bit to some of the, you know, work-related events at museums, um, which is a huge, you know, opportunity for her. Uh, helps to make it a little easier for me to be away from home. Um, and uh, And I think is a is a good example for you know not just the museum field but even you know broader than that that you can have you know family engagement in a lot of uh, in a lot of the work that we do but it's easier in the museum field if I was still in you know PricewaterhouseCoopers and accounting <laughs> and finance world it probably would be a lot more difficult um, for me to have that kind of integration that I feel I'm able to achieve you know working with museums. So we're more forgiving, perhaps, in that regard. Does that put a downward pressure, maybe, though, on uh, salaries and other things as well? You know, you, you love your job, you love the mission, you love the culture, so we don't have to pay as much. Is that a problem? It's interesting. I recently learned the term um, uh, pink-collar career, pink-collar field. Um, and I think that probably is a real risk. So we have a good, uh, I think the national studies have shown that we have a good 50-50 um, uh, mix right now of, of men and women in the field. Um, the Lots of pipeline and museum studies programs and others coming into the field up through the traditional um, pathways uh, it's heavily, more heavily female oriented and uh, and I think there is a, a segment of the of the population that is really concerned about becoming sort of a a, a, a pink collar field which I suppose means um, you know uh, downward sal- salary pressure and and um, uh, because there's well all the things that go along with uh, with the stereotypical females in in jobs so um, I don't know I I think that th- I think this is another issue of our time that the world at writ large is struggling with certainly in the United States uh, technology has enabled a flexibility that we haven't had in the past and a lot of um, a lot of this is not, you know, women's issues. It's it's family issues and it's um, current society issues. And I hope that you know the the nonprofit field at large. And this isn't just 
you know, limited to museums, um, can find a way to really, uh, you know, value the expertise and the talent that we need in the field and pay and reward in other ways accordingly uh, those, those people. It's the way that we're going to survive. Switching topics, what was your very first museum memory? So I just relived my very first museum memory. Um, I went to the uh, American Museum of Natural History in New York City. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York, about an hour north of the city. That's upstate to people in New York City. And uh, it was a class field trip, I think probably around fourth grade. Uh, and I remember standing in front of the dinosaur fossils. Who doesn't, right? Um, and uh, I got, like I said, la- a couple weeks ago, got to go back to, to the museum and sort of re- relive it. Um, so g- growing up to such close proximity to such fabulous institutions in New York City, I have many uh, recollections of being there as a as a child uh, through field trips and other things. But but that one stands out and, and was really fun to kind of recreate. So last question. Uh, what advice would you give to anybody entering the field that wants to aspire to your uh, level of leadership? Well, I think one of the keys to my success has just been to be open to anything and be curious about where things would take me. So I um, sometimes felt (laughs) uh, sort of a, I felt bad that I didn't have a planned out career path. I was definitely going to, you know, do this and then I was going to do the next thing and I was going to move on. I've wandered a little bit, but I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's worked for me to gather lots of different types of experiences and lots of different places. Um, and to be open to the possibility of whatever, you know, sort of opportunity has, has come my way. Um, I've also been really lucky, uh, I think to have had great mentors and great, you know, um, uh, um, organizations, National Geographic Society, and and uh, and Pricewaterhouse Coopers, and 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 uh, in the corporate side, and um, and the uh, MCI Foundation. So I've had some really great organizations that I've worked with, but also smaller departments, I guess, within those organizations that have allowed me to wear lots of different hats and thereby gather lots of different experiences and really figure out what I liked, what I was good at, and. Um, and 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 sort of be curious about where you know where things would take me and willing to follow the path even if it wasn't in a in a plan. Thank you, Laura. You're a great friend, colleague. Really appreciate everything you're doing for the field. Good luck. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate this. Open your eyes. Look around you. It's a beautiful life. great to hear from Laura. She um, entered into, she came to our session at um, AAM and said a few words to the audience about um, women's issues and her experiences mm. um, as a mom and as a working mom, which, which you guys talked about. Yeah. I mean, I like what she said about work-life integration. I think we talk so much about work-life balance as though there are two compartmentalized segments of our lives. And when you go to work, it's like work and then you go home and you mm-hmm. deal with everything else. But to live a happy, fulfilled life, you really do need to be thinking of yourself as a whole person. So that notion of integration is a very important one. How we do that is another question, of course. Right. This is this goes back to, to you know the worker revolution. I think we're all talking about these things now. Where in the past we didn't. So I travel in museum circles where we talk about worker issues and we also talk about generational issues. I'm in the Gen X um, group. And um, one of one of my colleagues in that group, Elizabeth Nevins, will talk about how she always talks about her daughter to people, 
Like you're not supposed to bring it up, but she brings it up because it's part of her life and people should know that that's part of her life. Her daughter's part of her life. And, um, in talking to other people about Gen X issues or generational issues in the workplace, um, women in the past would never, they didn't feel like they could talk about those things because they would be discriminated against. And it's so comforting to hear that we can now talk about these things and that we can talk about our families and in our full lives. That's great. So I think in that regard, I think Laura is a great role model, just one for even just saying it. Mm. And that talking about it is is always the first step. And I'm excited that we're doing that. Yeah. Well, and she made the point, too, about it being really a family thing and not just the the mother, because I think the the stereotype is always the mom is going to have to take care of the kids and work and whatever. Meanwhile, the dad just gets off easy, just goes to work and doesn't have to worry about it. But the fact is, is I think a lot of fathers are taking more of a role in the actual upbringing and care of especially younger children. And so it is a family thing. And how do we view families? I know in the U.S. we're really rotten at it compared to some other places Mm -hmm. that it, it just becomes in other countries, this is the norm to be able to have family leave and to accommodate uh, both sexes in raising their kids, they encourage it. I think we should be thinking about that really also in the field. You know, these issues that we've got with re- regard to compensation, maybe we're never going to get money the way we want it to be, but we've got a lot of latitude to create benefits that actually support our workers a lot better. And maybe that's one of them as well. Mm-hmm. You know, really focusing in on stuff like the, you know, family leave, accommodating parents of both sexes to deal with kids, child care, working from home, that type of thing. Yeah. Episode nine. We're done. Are we? Got to go. There's so much I have to say, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to um, explain our, our season two photograph? Oh, <laughs> I totally forgot the photo shoot. So we did a photo shoot, Marika and I, at the Renwick Gallery in Washington, D.C. One evening... Well, should we say it, it was during a reception? During the reception, yes. that we were all set loose in such a, a glorious space, Re, beautiful revamped space in beautiful DC. art. Yeah, and uh, we did a few selfies that didn't turn out so well, and then we recruited <laughs> a few uh, folks to take some photos, and it was a wild time. So take a look at the website, uh, nemanet.org/slash/museum-people, and you'll see that uh, the results of that photo shoot there. It was a great, great fun. Dan, it was a pleasure recording season one, and I look forward to more of season two. Yeah, absolutely. And we want to thank everybody for being with us, sticking with us. Here we are again. Hashtag museum people. And Marika, as you have always said, we love you, museum people. <laughs> Next time on Museum People. My hope and dream for museums is that they become recognized as absolutely essential to their communities. This was really exciting to them because they'd never seen anyone like their grandparent in a museum. Transgender folks are very underrepresented in the media and in museums, too. Am I a feminist? Why can't you be a feminist? Do you think that women have brains? (laughs) Cut it out. (laughs) Museum People is a production of the New England Museum Association, which connects, inspires, and empowers cultural institutions to provide their communities with deep and authentic experiences. Have an idea or comment for Museum People? Go to nemanet.org slash museumpeople to provide feedback, get information about episodes, and learn how to subscribe. Thanks for listening. <laughs>